Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to chapter 5, verse 2. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you're getting uh, seated, can I invite you to pray with me? Um, I'm feeling a little bit rough. I feel like maybe I'm... So if I don't shake your hand or give you a big hug after the gathering, uh, it's not personal. I feel like I'm coming down with something. And uh, so I need help. Let's pray. Father, um, today's just another reminder. I'm, I'm very weak. I'm inadequate. And I cannot do this. Not just because I'm feeling a bit sick, but... I can never do this. And so we appeal to you, Lord, to give us the grace we need to to hear your word. Not just so it sounds hitting our ears, but it's it's your word that we receive meekly into our hearts that is able to transform us. And so, Lord, we ask you to, to work that miracle into our lives today. And Lord, we want to lift up today uh, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ City, East Van. As they get going this morning with the Sermon on the Mount, I pray you'd bless their gathering. Bless our, our own congregation members who are out there celebrating with them this morning. And Lord, use this church plant in East Vancouver to proclaim the gospel. To, to see people brought in to know and to love and to worship and to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Fred, and I'm part of the team here at Christ City. I'm also a community group leader. That's what that means. And so, hey, if you're looking for a community group, let me pump the tires a little bit. Um, <laughs> Today, as uh, Brandis said, and as we've been saying, Lord willing, uh, we're beginning a 32-week series. Don't worry, it's not all 32 weeks from here on out. We're going to break that up with Advent and a couple other little things. But, but basically, we're, we're doing 32 weeks um, in Matthew 5 to 7. Those are the chapters we're going to spend 32 weeks in. Matthew chapter 5 to verse to chapter 7. Now, these chapters make up what is unquestionably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Uh, We call this, and it probably says this in your Bible just above Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. On the Mount. And, and this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Let me encourage you, 
live in this in this this section. Live in this sermon. Read it and reread it and ponder it and pray over it in the coming weeks. This sermon is is so well known, in fact, that even many people who are not familiar at all with Christianity or the Bible have have heard and would easily recognize some of the things that Jesus says in this sermon. For example, we've all heard about turning the other cheek, haven't we? Well, go to Matthew 5.39. That's where you'll find it. Or uh, everyone, especially us when we were little children, we're all familiar with the golden rule. Didn't your parents teach you the golden rule? I didn't grow up in a Christian household, but I was taught the golden rule as a little boy. You go to Matthew seven twelve, and this is what Jesus says. Do to others what you would have them do to you. We're all familiar with this. There's also uh, the very popular teaching in our day, found in Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. We often leave that part out. These and, and other things that Jesus says in this sermon have sort of worked their way into our thinking and our language way beyond the church. And many non-Christians uh, throughout history have really taken on board many of the things that Jesus says in this sermon. Perhaps, I think, the best-known example of this is uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Um, in his struggle for India's independence in 1947, in his struggle for India's independence uh, from the British... Gandhi drew heavily upon the Sermon on the Mount in order to develop his strategy of non-violent resistance against colonialism. Gandhi himself admits, he gets that from, admitted, he's gone now, um, admitted that he, he got that from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there's a recognized neuroscientist. I didn't recognize him because I'm not into neuroscience, but apparently he's recognized throughout the world. His name is uh, Abjit Naskar. And here's what he says. The influence of the Sermon on the Mount is truly past reckoning. That's my point. And then he goes on to say, any rational human being with a conscientious mind is bound to be influenced by its exuberant content regardless of their religious background. Now, NASCAR's point, I think, is interesting. But ultimately, I, I think he's missing something important. I think, I, I think he, he's making a valid point, but he's, he's missing something that's, that's very important. Here's the thing. Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to influence, quote, people regardless of their religious influence or their religious background, excuse me. 
That's not why he preached the Sermon on the Mount. I don't doubt that reading the Sermon on the Mount has had tremendous influence on many people, regardless of their religious background. I don't doubt that. Gandhi's a point. NASCAR's a point. So on. But that is not why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not some sort of bland uh, set of uh, universal ethical principles or general truths that can apply equally to Hindus as well as humanists or Mormons as well as Muslims. To approach the sermon in that way is to completely miss the message of the sermon. Here's something I'm praying. Is that we would submit ourselves to the sermon rather than trying to submit the sermon to ourselves. That's my prayer. So as we begin this series in the Sermon on the Mount, what I want us to do this morning is just to step back a little bit. Just to step back a little bit and notice three important things. First, the preacher. Second, the people. And third, yes, you guessed it, the point. Those are my perfect P's this morning. The preacher, the people, and the point. We begin by looking at the preacher. Now, I said a moment ago that the Sermon on the Mount is is not a message of general, universal, ethical principles. Neither is it some sort of body of religious teaching that is similar to all the other world religions. I say this, I make this point so strongly because so many people try to read it that way. They try to force it into those categories. But it just won't fit. You cannot take Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount seriously and do that with the sermon. Rather, I suggest to you that The Sermon on the Mount is utterly unique. And the Sermon on the Mount is utterly unique because of the uniqueness of the person who preached it. Jesus was not just a a good moral teacher, like other good moral teachers. Jesus is in a class all by himself, sui generis. He's in a category all on his own. There never has been and never will be anyone to even remotely rival Jesus. Now, having said that, let's look at Matthew 5, 1 to 2. Because this doesn't look spectacular. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is pedestrian. This is not spectacular. Agreed? But let me just point out, these 
two verses are all about Jesus. Jesus saw the crowds. Jesus went up on the mountain. Uh, Jesus sat down. Jesus' disciples came to Jesus. Jesus opened his mouth and Jesus taught them, right? It's all about Jesus. Now, we, we hear these verses read, and I, per, I suspect that many of us think that Matthew's just giving us some, some details, some fairly innocuous details of some things that Jesus happened to do. Kind of like Fred went to the grocery store and bought some eggs, some bread, and some milk to bring home to his family. Boy, you guys are quiet this morning. But that's not it. That's not what's going on here. You see, in the context of Matthew's gospel, even these simple descriptions are full of significance. Specifically, Matthew, when we read Matthew 5, 1 to 2, Matthew wants us to make a connection between Jesus and Moses. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, allow me to explain. You see, these connections between Jesus and Moses, in order to see what I'm saying here, in order to see the connection between Jesus and Moses, we have to consider some things that Matthew has already said in the preceding four chapters. There's a lot there, but I just want to show you a few. See, in those chapters... Matthew has already been busy at work creating connections, associations, between the person of Jesus and the person of Moses, the great hero of Israel's faith from the Old Testament. For example, and we just quickly, just like Moses, Jesus was born into a situation where the ruler was trying to kill him. Remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus trying to kill Moses? Well, Jesus was born into a situation where Herod was trying to kill him. That's in Matthew 2. Just like Moses, Jesus spent a period of time in the wilderness. That to anybody reading that passage in Matthew 4 would immediately think of the wilderness that Moses led the Israelites through. Just like Moses, Jesus fasted for 40 days. So did Moses. He fasted for 40 days on the mountain. In Matthew 4, talks about that. So anybody reading these, these early chapters would be hearing echoes and associations back to Moses. Another one, just like Moses, Jesus passed through the water of the Jordan River. Pass through it differently, but the connection to the Jordan would have been pregnant in the mind to make the association of how Moses and the people of Israel passed through the Jordan. Now, in addition to these few things, and there's others, biblical scholars have pointed out for, for a long time that the, the five distinct discourses, the teaching times of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew, are reminiscent of the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. 
Some have suggested that Matthew is a sort of new Pentateuch for the new people of God. Well, we won't go down that trail, but these are the sorts of things that scholars point out. So, what I'm saying is that when we come, finally, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, our minds have been prepared already to see connections. This is the only thing I'm really saying here. To see connections between Moses and Jesus. Let me point out at least three here in these simple verses. In verse 1, it says that Jesus went up the mountain. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, it's okay if you don't. You can read this for yourself. Mountains played, mountains played an incredibly important role in key decisive moments throughout the history of Israel. Mountains are important. And no mountain was, was as significant for Israel as Mount Sinai in Arabia. And so, part of what we're meant to hear here, 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 <laughs> there, got it, is that just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, Jesus went up the mountain to announce the law's fulfillment. Where am I getting that from? Well, look at Matthew 5, 17. In Matthew 5, 17, and we will come to this in a number of weeks. This is so important. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Commenting on this very important statement, Jonathan Pennington writes, Jesus is presented as the new and final arbiter of God's law, therefore functioning as a new and final Moses. That's the first thing. Second thing. We see a connection between Jesus and Moses in this really simple phrase, when he sat down. It's not a word wasted in the Bible. If you don't see it at first, take a closer look. Turn it over in your mind. Think about it. Listen for associations. See, in the ancient world, and you also have to know something about the the ancient context, and, and here it is, I'll explain it. See, in the ancient world, a preacher or a teacher wouldn't stand... He'd sit, and I'm tempted to ask Brent to grab me a stool because I'm really sweating it up here. Um, He'd sit. Specifically, he'd sit down in Moses' seat. Now, this was literally a physical chair located in every synagogue, the seat of Moses. So when someone came into the synagogue, a teacher, an authoritative leader of some kind, they would sit down in Moses' seat and he was speaking with Moses' authority as he taught the people. You get the picture. Now, just so you don't think I'm making this up, Jesus actually references this in Matthew 23, verses 2 to 3. Look at what he says. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. A little dig air on the, on the scribes and the Pharisees. But you get the point. That he's referring to Moses' seat. Now the obvious difference here in the passage that we're looking at this morning is that Jesus is not sitting. He's not sitting down in Moses' seat. He's nowhere even near a synagogue here, right? He's sitting down on the mountain. And I, I, I think what this means is that Jesus doesn't have to borrow from Moses' authority when he preaches. Because in Matthew one twenty three, he's already told us that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. Wow. Ask and you will receive. What a great guy. I'm, I'm just boiling up here. Thanks, buddy. There we are. Moses' seat. Not really. <laughs> Is that okay? Do you mind? I'm just really cooking. Um, I'll probably get up and move around. So, where was I? Jesus is God with us. He's God in the flesh. And, and here's what we need to see as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking with God's own authority. Here's the, the, the parallel. Just as God, Yahweh, the Lord, spoke from the mountain to Moses and the people of God, Jesus spoke speaks from the mountain. In a sense, Jesus is is just sort of bypassing Moses. He doesn't need to borrow from his authority. Now, we'll explain more of that in the coming weeks. Third thing, Matthew adds that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. Now, this is a particular expression. I think it's almost like kind of a technical expression that happens in this literature of the time. And it signals to the reader a formal time of teaching or instruction from an authoritative teacher. And so immediately, Matthew's readers would be tuned in to something important is about to be said. And it will be. We'll get to that next week where we'll begin. But in light of what I've already said, and in light of what we've seen in this connection between Moses and Jesus, I, I, I think that hearing that would make Matthew's readers think of a great prophecy. A prophecy from God that he would one day raise up a prophet like Moses who would speak to the people the very words of God from his own mouth. Listen to Deuteronomy 18.18. This is where the Lord is telling Moses. This is what he says. I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. See, Matthew here is hinting to us, and he's going to prove this more and more throughout the book, that Jesus is the later and greater prophet like Moses, who speaks to us through this sermon the very words of God himself. 
Now here's the question for us this morning. Are we prepared to hear, to believe and to receive and to obey those words from Jesus? Speaking to myself as well as the rest of you. Are we prepared to posture ourselves in relation to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and say, I come to hear, to receive, to believe, and to obey. Because that is really the point here, isn't it? We don't come just to fill our heads with religious and Christian and theological information. We come to hear, receive, believe, and obey to walk it out. Now, don't take my word from it for it. Listen to what Jesus said, because he says that this really is the issue. In Matthew 7, later on in the sermon, verses 24 to 27, here's what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine, not general religious teaching that anybody could have given you, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. See, how we respond to Jesus and his message determines whether we will stand or fall. And Jesus isn't referring here just to the, the general storms of life that all of us are eventually going to face. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking much more importantly about the great storm of God's final judgment. And go and look in Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and the judgment day is referred to as the storm of the Lord. So we turn from the preacher and we turn to consider the people. In Matthew 4.25, here's what it says. Great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then in Matthew 5.1, we read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, some have suggested in the transition between those two verses, some have suggested that Jesus withdrew from the crowds and he delivered the Sermon on the Mount exclusively to his disciples, those kind of hardcore committed followers. But if we go to the very end of the sermon, after Jesus finishes preaching, we see that that is not the case. In Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, here's what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, my first point, and not as their scribes. So apparently, if we look at those two, the beginning and the end, the book uh, ends of the sermon, we see that Jesus was preaching 
to his disciples as well as the crowds. So he's, he's not just quietly having a conversation in a small community group. He is proclaiming his sermon for many to hear, crowds of people to hear. So if I raise my voice sometimes, that's what I'm doing. So perhaps, if you could think of it this way, for our purpose this morning, and I, I, don't, I don't know if we've got a slide up here, but imagine concentric circles of commitment. Jesus is in the center. The next circle out, you've got the disciples. And the third circle out, the furthest one, you've got the crowds. Okay, everybody got that picture in their minds? It's not there. Um, three circles, concentric circles, Jesus, the disciples, the crowds. Imagine that. These are circles of commitment. And the disciples are those who are sincerely interested in in hearing from Jesus, in following Jesus, in knowing who he is and what he's all about. Some of them we've seen already in in the gospel. They're sold out. They're committed. They're following. They're all in. But at this point in the gospel, at this point in Matthew's gospel, not all of them are there yet. At this point, some of the disciples still have big questions. They're not quite sure. They they don't know fully yet who Jesus really is. He'll tell them later. But they're still disciples. They're learning. They're listening. They're pressing in. They're asking questions. They're fully engaged. Even if they are still asking questions or are uncertain about some things. So that's the disciples, that first circle around Jesus. But now go to the next circle, the crowds. Now in Matthew, Matthew talks a lot about the crowds. And in, in, in Matthew's gospel, the crowds play quite an interesting role. One moment, as we've seen already, the crowds are, are you know, they're like fanboys. You know, they're kind of following all around Jesus and, and they're really into him and they're going wherever he goes. They especially love it when he does miracles. That's cool. But at other times in Matthew's gospel, the crowds are fickle. The crowds are double-minded. They're unstable. For example, in Matthew 9.36, it says that the crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. Now that's kind of like kittens wandering everywhere. No clue where they're going. That's for you, Kim. And, and you know, it's, it's like they have no idea where they're going. And as a result of that, the crowds are easily manipulated. So we get to Matthew 27, and there's this scene in verse 20 where the crowds are persuaded by the religious leaders to demand from, from uh, to demand the release from prison of Barabbas, this notorious criminal. They demand the release of Barabbas because they're persuaded by the religious leaders. And they demand, in turn, the death of Jesus. Crowds are fickle. Let me say, when it comes to picturing ourselves 
in relation to Jesus, you don't want to be among the crowds. The crowds are not committed. They relate to Jesus sort of out of convenience or, or whatever is expedient for them. They take Jesus when it suits them and they reject him or ignore him when it doesn't. So don't belong to the crowds. Rather, let me encourage you this morning to press in, to draw near, to consider yourself a disciple. Even if you have questions, even if if you're not sure yet, come in and take that step into that Closer circle. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Hear him a little bit more clearly. Ask questions. Learn. Listen. Come with a receptive heart. And I would say this. Come wanting to know above all else. Who is the real Jesus we read about in the Bible? Not some imaginary Jesus who simply confirms to me what I already believe. Jesus is not our personal echo chamber. (laughs) This morning, I want to invite you to press in over the next 10 months. Come and sit at his feet. Allow his message to challenge you. Allow his words to search your heart, maybe to upend some of what you believe, and perhaps to confront our complacency in some areas. Come and let his teaching specifically renew your faith to, 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 to welcome it on board in your life so that it can transform you and, and open up for you new possibilities of living for the glory of God. That's what this sermon is for. 27 years ago, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount helped my wife, Marlene, before we were married. It helped Marlene to discover that even though she'd grown up in the church and fairly acquainted with her Bible, she discovered through the Sermon on the Mount that she was not really a follower of Jesus. I had bought her a book, uh, a rather wonderful book, a famous series, published series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount by a British preacher uh, by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Wonderful book. And I had bought this book and given it to her. And Lloyd-Jones, as he goes through his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, he asks this again and again and again, and I, I'm tempted to do the same. Does what I'm saying, what, does what Jesus is saying here in the sermon, does that describe you? Is that your heart? Is that your life? And Lloyd-Jones did this page after page after page, again and again. And that, that question was like a pebble in Marlene's shoe. It just began to irritate and annoy and convict. It was relentless. The Holy Spirit was at work in Marlene's heart. And she had to come to that place where she admitted, I'm not a Christian. And she, she owned her hypocrisy. And she turned from her unbelief and submitted her life to Christ. The real Jesus, not the convenient, user-friendly Jesus. 
And that is my prayer that some of us here at Christ City would go from the crowds to become disciples, to know the real Jesus who reveals through his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount what it really means for us to live for the glory of God. Third point. We've considered the preacher, the people, now the point. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount just doesn't appear kind of out of nowhere. We've seen through those connections with Moses that it's sort of rooted in and related to the history of Israel as it's revealed in the Old Testament. But if you take the time to read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll soon discover that it is a story without a resolution. You know, the the story, real Reader's Digest here, the Israelites are in slavery and bondage in Egypt. Moses leads them out uh, and, and they're led through the wilderness and finally they make it into the promised land. Whoopee! But all is not as it should be in the promised land. All is not well. There's something wrong in the state of Israel, Denmark. And the story goes that throughout Israel's long history, their, their kings fail them. Their priests fail them. The people are idolatrous, selfish, unjust, sinful. Sound like anyone you know? And eventually, the prophets are, uh, God raises up prophets who, who call the people to repent, but they don't. And eventually God exiles the people of Israel, the southern tribes, into Babylonian captivity. One of the lowest points in the history of Israel. And then years later, many of them return to the promised land. But even after returning, and this brings us up to Jesus' day, Israel is not enjoying their own kingdom under their own king. They're under the oppressive foreign rule of Rome. Even in Jesus' day. But just as the prophets called the people of God to repent of their sin, they also promised the people of God something. They promised that one day a king, the king, would come. And they promised that he would restore all things. He is the Messiah, just means the anointed king. And he would rescue his people from their bondage. And he would restore the kingdom. And he would renew all things, not just for the Israelites, but for all people everywhere. Jesus is that promised king. In, in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the first verse in this book, it opens by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the English form of the Greek word that translates the word Messiah, anointed king. Jesus is the king that the prophets promised. He's the fulfillment, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 17, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So in Matthew 4, 17, it says that Jesus began to preach saying, repent 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because he's the king. He's announcing the kingdom. In verse 23, it says that he went about through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. This is key. And this is not just for the Jewish people, but this is for all people everywhere. How does he bring in this kingdom? Well, there's a clue in Matthew 1, verse 21. It says that Jesus will save his people from their sin. How's he going to do that? Well, Matthew's going to tell us. We're going to look at it. But he does this by laying his life down for us. He does this by taking on the punishment for our sin that we deserve, by being crucified in our place, in order to, that we would be forgiven our sin and reconciled to God. Some, one of the ways I like to put it is Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because all of us owed a debt that none of us could pay. And that's what he came and did. He did it by dying in your place. And then he rose from the dead. He is the triumphant king. He is the risen king. He has subjected sin and death and Satan to his reign. That's why at the very end of this gospel, very famous passage in Matthew 28, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or to obey everything I've commanded, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's the king. And the Sermon on the Mount, as we close, this is the point of the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of what life in the kingdom looks like. You want to live in the kingdom of God? Read, study, understand, and follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's a description of the kind of transformation that God works in our lives when we repent of our sin and submit ourselves to King Jesus. So let me invite you this morning. Come. Don't just come here on Sunday. Come near to Jesus. Sit at his feet. Hear, sympathetically hear his words. Allow his truth to wash over you. To maybe make you feel uncomfortable at times. I'm studying already uh, for the upcoming sermons and some of this is uncomfortable. But trust, trust, trust. Trust that he is the king who has done everything we need to make this kind of life happen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please draw us near to Jesus? Grant us to come on Sunday hungry, teachable, leaning in to to listen to what he has to tell us. Would you do that work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.